all of us. Everyone at the state's academic medical center. All working together to deliver complete care now and for generations to come. All over the state, including hospital and clinic locations from the Delta to the Gulf Coast. All for one reason. You. The University of Mississippi Medical Center. All for your health. From MPB Think Radio, it's the original Southern Remedy, where the doctors are always in. I'm Dr. Rick DeShazo, Professor of Medicine and Pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center, and we want to welcome you to our weekly get-together about whatever you're interested in, medically speaking. So if you have a question, get it together and send us a email at one 672 7464 That's one 877 mpb ring or at org. I've got a special guest, and we're also going to be talking about all kinds of urogenital problems in women, including uh, problems with sexual dysfunction, incontinence, you name it. So this is going to be a great program for all kinds of things we don't usually get to talk about. We'll be right back to take your call. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. President Obama plans more commutations before he leaves office in two days, likely involving inmates convicted on drug offenses. He may offer more details when he holds his final news conference of his presidency this afternoon. Obama's use of his clemency powers came under heavy criticism yesterday after he decided to let Chelsea Manning out of prison nearly 30 years ahead of schedule. Manning is a transgender former intelligence officer who leaked hundreds of thousands of sensitive documents. Donald Trump's transition team is slamming Obama's decision on Manning, and incoming White House spokesman Sean Spicer says it sends a very troubling message when it comes to holding people accountable for how classified materials are handled. Nikki Haley, Donald Trump's choice for a U.N. ambassador, has tough words for Russia. NPR's Michelle Kellerman reports on Haley's confirmation hearing. The South Carolina governor is fielding questions about many parts of the world. The ranking Democrat, Ben Cardin, zeroed in on Russia, asking her if she would advocate for maintaining U.S. sanctions on Moscow, which has been interfering in elections here and in Europe. Haley says Russia would have to take positive steps before any sanctions are eased. What I'll tell you is Russia is trying to show their muscle. Right now, it is what they do. And I think we always have to be cautious. I don't think that we can trust them. She says President-elect Donald Trump will look at this with, in her words, fresh eyes. She says she's talked to him about Russia, but not in detail. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, Washington. Trump's nominee to lead the Environmental Protection Agency, Scott Pruitt, is acknowledging at his Senate confirmation hearing that human activity contributes to climate change. Here's NPR's Jennifer Ludden. Senate Democrats asked whether Pruitt's fit for the job, given his past questioning of climate science and the hundreds of thousands of dollars he's received from fossil fuel industry. Pruitt told the panel he'd work with states to return the EPA to what he called its proper role. He said it's possible to pursue environmental protection and economic growth. NPR's Jennifer Ludden reporting on Pruitt's remarks. As the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration reports, 2016 was the hottest year on record. 
J.P. Morgan is paying $55 million to settle a suit alleging it discriminated against black and Hispanic homebuyers getting mortgages. Meanwhile, the Labor Department filed a pay discrimination suit against the bank. Here's NPR's Yuki Noguchi. J.P. Morgan allegedly charged the average black or Hispanic homebuyer more than white homebuyers by about $1,000. In total, an estimated 53,000 borrowers were affected. In settling the case with the U.S. attorney in New York, J.P. Morgan denied wrongdoing and said the prices were set by independent brokers. Meanwhile, in a separate case, the Labor Department says that J.P. Morgan systematically paid female employees less than equally situated men. The agency is asking the court to cancel J.P. Morgan's federal contracts if it does not compensate the employees. Yuki Noguchi, NPR News, Washington. This is NPR News. A human rights group is calling on the Nigerian government to compensate the victims of the accidental bombing of a refugee camp. NPR's Ada Peralta reports 52 people were killed, including six members of the Red Cross. Human Rights Watch says even if the bombing was unintentional, it still violates humanitarian law because it was indiscriminate. In a statement, the rights group says, quote, victims should not be denied redress merely because the government decided the bombing was accidental. The Nigerian president said a warplane attacked the camp during an operation against the Islamist group Boko Haram. Doctors Without Borders had a team at the refugee camp. A video released by the group shows the aftermath. It shows doctors tending to dozens of refugees, some of them bleeding, others crying. A baby is shown on the ground badly burnt. The Nigerian government says it is offering whatever help Borno State needs to deal with the bombing. Ada Peralta, NPR News, Nairobi. The Iraqi military is declaring that it has full control of eastern Mosul, where ISIS had been in command. Despite reports, there are still some pockets of ISIS resistance. It is a milestone in Baghdad's three-month operation. But despite support from the U.S.-led coalition, Iraqi troops still face the challenge of trying to retake western Mosul. That portion of the city is said to be home to some of Mosul's oldest neighborhoods, where the condensed layout of buildings on narrow streets are expected to complicate the operation to root out ISIS militants. U.S. stocks are mixed this hour. The Dow is off 46 points. S&P 500 is up a fraction. NASDAQ is up three points. I'm Lakshmi Singh, NPR News in Washington. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include Carbonite, a cloud backup and restore solution for office and home computers. Learn more at Carbonite.com. And the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, helping NPR advance journalistic excellence in the digital age. You're listening to Southern Remedy with Dr. Rick DeShazo on MPB Think Radio. We're glad to take your calls at 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. You can always email your comments and questions to southernremedy at mpbonline.org. This is MPB Think Radio, Mississippi Public Broadcasting. It's great to have you. If you're listening to us on Wednesday morning, we're live. Or if you're listening to us on Sunday morning at 6 a.m., good morning. And thanks for listening to uh, the replay on Sunday morning. Uh, This is uh, a usual and typical show. It's all things considered. And we'll take whatever calls you want to uh, to make about whatever you're interested in, but from time to time I bring along a, a friend who doesn't necessarily limit the topic, but adds a little, a lot to it actually, in an area that I'm interested in, and the area that uh, bugs me is the, um, 
is the paper products line uh, at the grocery store. It drives me crazy every time I help my wife uh, shop. And the main reason it does that is because half of it is filled with women's and men's uh, incontinence products, Depends, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I brought uh, Dr. Paul Moore, who is a rare uh, uh, property. He is a urogynecologist. He's both a gynecologist and a urologist put together in one package. And he deals with women's uh, problems, uh, gynecologic problems, especially those associated with um, incontinence, uh, pelvic floor problems, uh, also libido issues and so forth. So you must be pretty busy, Dr. Paul. We stay, we, we do stay pretty busy. So. Yeah. So, um, you, uh, you're a Mississippi native, right? I am. I'm originally from Pascagoula and spent most of my life in Mississippi until, uh, leaving for some training, but had to get back. And you had a lot of training. You went to, uh, went to Kentucky for your OBGYN and delivered babies and took care of, uh, women who were postmenopausal, and then you went to a great place, Albany, New York, where uh, the snow never leaves, no, uh, where it's uh, an interesting place and a lot of New York politics there, and uh, did your OBGYN, uh, GYN uh, urological training, right? That's correct. All right. So what is the most, and by the way, if you have a call about uh, anything, including urogynecology, uh, incontinence, fecal or urinary, recurrent urinary tract infections, or anything related to the female urogenital tract, give us a call. We're at one eight seven seven mpb ring and we'll take a questions on any other topic. It's Open Mic on Southern Remedy. I'm Dr. Rick DeShazo, your host, with our special guest, Dr. Paul Moore, who is a urogynecologist who is helping me fill in the gaps when you're not calling. So this is a good time to call. All our lines are open, and we'd love to hear... Uh, your questions. So, uh, why do women? Why do so many women uh, uh, have problems with uh, stress, incontinence, and urge incontinence? And what are those? So, to 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 make a, dis, a distinction between the two, uh, when when a patient comes and that tells me I have urinary incontinence, I want to try to at least put them in one of two categories if I can. One is what we call stress incontinence, and that's not... No, we're just incontinence for urine, right? This, right, we're talking about urine. you also get people with fecal incontinence. That is, that's correct. Everything and, I'm saying now is about urinary. And we'll get to that, too. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. So there's two major types of urinary mm-hmm. incontinence. Okay. Mm-hmm. The stress, uh, that stress on your bladder through a cough, sneeze, uh, running, jumping, some sort of physical activity, versus uh, what... what uh, uh, many of us think of now as overactive bladder. That's the frequency, urgency. Got to go, got to go. And you just don't make it in time, and you're leaking on the way to the bathroom or with the uh, running water. And so uh, we think of those as different because we're going to say they have different causes and treat them uh, differently. Is the treatment to go get depends? Uh, that is commonly done, but there is certainly more that one can do. Um, that's that's always the first treatment when I say, what are my, when the patient asks, what are my options? I say, well, you can just live with it. You're not going to die from your incontinence, but you can um, you can improve upon it if you so, so choose. So I have a whole bunch of senior citizens uh, in my uh, gene line, mm-hmm. and, um, you know, at least half of them are women. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, they outlive the men, so it gets to be 75% of them a little bit later on. 
uh, and they all have problems with incontinence, and they never talk about it publicly. Whenever I go back to Alabama or wherever uh, I'm going to visit with my relatives, this is the most common question I get. Can uh, Ricky, can I talk to you uh, for a minute about a problem I've got? And then they go into this problem, very embarrassing problem where in church, uh, after drinking a lot of coffee in, in before church, they all of a sudden stand up and lose their urine, and they don't know what to do, and they're wearing all these bulky pads, and it's just a, and they smell bad and all kinds of stuff. So what percentage of women with urinary incontinence can you fix without surgery? Without surgery, we can, I won't say fix, but I'll say make significant improvement uh, uh, in in maybe close to half without just with lifestyle changes and perhaps with medications. Fantastic. Mm -hmm. That's great. And so that means the rest of them, they are offered an option for some kind of procedure to fix this. Correct. And that's, there are options for procedures beyond uh, what I just mentioned, lifestyle and medications, if a patient chooses and it seems right for them. So what is the mechanics of this? Is it the pelvic floor like everything else? in seniors go south and just sags down. I mean, it looks like you're from the Gulf Coast. You know how everything goes south. Uh, is that the issue, or is it more complicated? It's That can be part of the issue. Uh, the, the etiologies are, are mixed, or uh, varied, I should say. The uh, Whether it's a genetic predisposition, I mean, you can look and see what your mom and your grandmother went through and think that you may have something similar happen to you. It can be effect of childbirth decades previously, uh, just slowly catching up with you. And then it's kind of wear and tear. Age does. I mean, we know these things are more common as you get older. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, what is the actual biologic problem? Is there uh, the angle of the tubes or something like that so, going on? What so, is- so for uh, kind of what for for the overactive bladder, which I think we're, we were more talking about, and that's the gotta go, gotta go. It's the bladder muscle and the brain have kind of lost their their best communication. And so the bladder is trying to empty or telling or is telling you it's full before before it might really be. Now, men have that uh, with prostate problems Correct. and other mm-hmm. urogenital male problems all the time, mm-hmm. and and women have it too. Correct. And uh, are the drugs and the management the same or different? Uh, they're quite different, especially if you're comparing. Um, uh, a, a male who has um, that you've identified in a large prostate. Mm-hmm. So that, those would definitely be uh, diff- different treatment options. So uh, if you have a problem uh, and you don't want to talk about it on the radio, just send us an email at southernremedy at org. It comes right into this room, and we will try to answer it. But I want to make sure all you ladies out there today and all you men who love ladies out there today that have this problem know that you don't have to live your life in the paper lane uh, at the big box store buying depends because there are some things that are as simple as exercises Mm -hmm. that uh, can really make a difference. That that is correct. Uh, Even uh, we do have good evidence that just – Pelvic floor muscle exercises, uh, what what most women know as, as as Kegel exercises, can make an improvement on both both types of urinary incontinence. I see a lot of my patients, and I've I've talked about these, and I give them a referral to the nurse who teaches teaches how to do this. Y'all have, and uh, they don't go; they'll get on the internet and, and look it up, and they never do them right. 
that's that's the next problem. You got to learn how to do them yeah. right, right? It is. Um, I, 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 I I use the example of going to the gym. You are um, if you don't do the proper, if you don't go, or if you don't, or if you go and don't do the proper exercises, you're not going to get the results that you mm-hmm. like. And so, so how do you spell Kegel? I never get it right. K e g a l. K e g e l. You can look on the internet if you're interested. You're listening to Dr. Paul Moore, our special guest, who's a urogynecologist, and Dr. Rick, your host on Wednesdays and Sunday mornings on Southern Remedy. We have open lines at one eight seven seven six seven two um six seven two seven four six four. I had a blip in my brain function there. So let's go to our first caller, who is William and Pearl. Hey William. William, you there? Yes, sir, I am. Thank you for calling. We uh, we appreciate it. Well, thank you for taking my call. I appreciate you all. Um, calling, um, it's more urinary, I guess, than anything else. Um, I'm a, a male in my early 30s, uh, and I had noticed I had problems using the, the, the bathroom. I would uh, go for a bowel movement, and uh, you know, whenever I would try to push, um, I would start urinating also and it just got to be a real problem you know i kind of had to make sure i had a towel ready just in case it happened and uh and i i, I was fairly overweight uh, 300 pounds or more um and i lost a lot of weight i got down to where i was about 225 mm-hmm. and uh i felt like um i still had some problems i was thinking a lot of problems were because of the weight just how from sitting but um and but it continued even after i lost a lot of weight uh, i was just calling to see if maybe there was a um, if that if that makes any sense. Or okay. No, well, no let me problem. ask you a couple of real quick questions. When you stand up, can you urinate without difficulty, or do you have to push? Oh no, sir. I can urinate just fine. Uh, so your problem is is that you leak when you sit down. I don't know. If, well, sometimes it's just leak. Sometimes it's full out. Everything goes. <laughs> uh-huh. Uh huh. But do you ever lose your urine or uh, or bowel movement when? You're, you don't want to in um, your pants? Not, well, occasionally, I, I, now I'm a little embarrassed to say this, occasionally I'll wake up in the night and found that I've... I've, I've uh, so on yourself? Yes, and uh-huh. it, but usually when it happens, it's not, you know, it's usually more di- you know, diarrhea, okay. that kind of consistency. Well, first, the first thing I have to tell you is it's nothing to be embarrassed about. We are humans, and these problems are very, very common, and we have ways to evaluate and treat them, and I really appreciate your willingness to discuss them where other people who are afraid to discuss them can hear about them. Do you want me to take this one, or do you want to take it? Well, the I guess the one comment I would make, since it's a little bit outside my area, is just... Um ensuring that there's no intrinsic bowel issue, namely, um, you know, you're a little on the younger side, but just ruling out, um, obviously, you're not, I don't especially worry about colon cancers or that sort of thing, but you want to be sure that nothing like that's going on. But probably more importantly or more commonly would be some sort of uh, bowel function uh, disorder or, or what we call some of the inflammatory bowel diseases are all things that at least you want to think of and rule out before just uh, treating. So let me tell you what I think you ought to do. Um, um, uh, about this, uh, I think you need to go to a urologist, uh, U-R-O-L-O-G-I-S-T, 
uh, because this is going to involve an evaluation of how your bladder works and how your bowel works. Now, if you have a primary care physician who has a lot of experience in this area, what's going to be an older family medicine or internal medicine specialist, that may be a place to start. But it's going to require uh, getting an, uh, having you urinate and getting an ultrasound of your bladder to make sure it empties. That'll be the first spot. The second thing will be uh, examining your sphincter, the muscle that keeps you from losing stool. We all have this muscle uh, at the end of our colon uh, that keeps uh, feces from coming out. And since you're having some leakage, there may be some problem there. And uh, and there also will be, uh, a fir- if you have not had a colonoscopy, probably that will be necessary. I would go ahead and get this done. Uh, the fact that you were so overweight probably uh, contributed to this, but there are some long-term issues that need to be sorted out, and it's probably not going to get better without some evaluation. So I would go ahead and do that. And uh, if you have more questions about it, just send me an email at southernremedy.mpbonline.org, and I will send you a uh, male incontinence um, uh, information sheet. Okay, hope that helped. I'm Dr. Rick here with Dr. Paul Moore, and we're taking all your questions about whatever you want to hear about. But in particular, I have a special guest today, Dr. Paul Moore, who is a urogynecologist who uh, takes care of ladies who have all kinds of problems. We'll talk a little bit about libido problems in just a minute. And whatever else is on your mind, we have open lines. Give us a call. We're at one 672 Inauguration Day is right around the corner, and Chapter 1 of a new administration is set to begin. As stories take shape, NPR will be here with coverage you can depend on to help you make sense of it all. Listen every day. Southern Remedy is a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting Think Radio and is funded in part by a grant from the University of Mississippi Medical Center and by the generous support from you, our listeners. An evening of jazz can be just what the doctor ordered. Take the greats, Ella, Coltrane, Dinah, Miles, and Monk. Mix in the contemporary giants like Shure, Rittenauer, Kral, Malone, and Benson. Join me, Meredith Michelle, with WJSU's Evening Jazz, 7 to 10 weeknights on MPB Music Radio. To listen to stories and shows, go to mpbonline.org. You're listening to Southern Remedy with Dr. Rick DeShazo on MPB Think Radio. We're glad to take your calls at 1-877-MPB-RING. 
That's 1-877-672-7464. You can always email your comments and questions to southernremedy at mpbonline.org. This is MPB Think Radio, Mississippi Public Broadcasting. Hey, welcome back to Southern Remedy, uh, All Things Considered, on Wednesdays, the original one. I'm Dr. Rick DeShazo. It's great to visit with you. We enjoy these visits and enjoy talking with you about medical issues of interest to you. And I have a, a friend, Dr. Paul Moore, who's here with me today as well. And, of course, our producer, Jay White. Jay, as you probably know, made a forecast about the World Series and missed it. So today I'm going to ask him uh, about the Super Bowl champion. Uh, so, uh, uh, Mr. White, who will be <laughs> the Super Bowl champion this year? Well, I, I made a prediction before the playoffs and said the Seahawks would make it, and they've lost mm. already, so uh, not good. I, I, I picked the Patriots to okay. win the Super Bowl. And, All right. Uh, my guess as to who they play is... It's anybody's guess. Those are two really good teams. Well, at least, hot right at, at least for those people who are on the line laying their money down, you, uh, <laughs> they have a little bit better direction than they had before. So uh, I trust your judgment. If, You're if, usually right, but unfortunately, lately, you've usually been wrong. Well, if they're laying money down on the line based on what I've said, they've got bigger problems. <laughs> okay. All right. So, Dr. Uh, Dr. Moore, uh, uh, women frequently at the end of their uh, visit with me – as I'm about to go out the door and show them to the lab, say, oh, I have one other issue. Uh, my husband says my libido is no good. <laughs> and that takes me, and I've just spent 30 minutes with them. It takes, at that point, I uh, have this, uh, some kind of neurologic reaction and uh, don't know quite what to say. So I close the door and go back in there and say, uh, okay. I don't. I have twelve more patients out here right now, but if if I'm going to have the nurse reschedule you, and we're going to talk about this, so then they come back a week or two later, and I'm never quite sure what's normal. Uh, primary care doctors are not really well trained in taking care of female urogenital problems, and we know nothing as males, most of us are males, we know nothing about libido in females. All we know is, you know, we function, uh, you know, like sort of, we function like those horses uh, that you're used to in Kentucky where you live for a long time. And, you know, <laughs> when it's time, it's time, and that's it. It's yeah. not that way with ladies. Yeah. So what, what do you do when people come in, women come in and say, hey, uh, let's talk about this? Okay, well... In, so with the kind of use the, the large term of uh, sexual dysfunction and once the uh, once the once we've begun to talk about the problem and come uh, try to understand what exactly she is where the problem lies and for simplicity's sake I try to divide it into three or four different categories um, is it kind of an arousal or desire disorder is it has does it have to do more with orgasm um, or does it have to do more with with pain and those, and and from there we can kind of go in in a um, in the in the best direction to to help the patient. Mm-hmm. And so, so so there are there are some normal levels for how much desire and how much orgasm and how much pain 
you're supposed to have having sex. And I know the answer for the third one. You're not supposed to have any pain. You're not supposed to have yeah, pain. Yeah, right. and, and a lot of the problems are related to aging and not having lubricant mm-hmm. and all that kind of stuff. And if you want to call, we'll talk to you about that. He knows the name of all these products and how to use them. But I'm not going to talk about it if you don't want to know. So we're at one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. Some of them, you know, have fireworks going mm-hmm. off after them. So I'm not going to talk about that. Talk about the other two. How do you know whether a woman who comes in has normal libido? Well, I usually let them tell me because they're usually basing off of prior experience. And so it's there's there's not a test for it. Um, there are surveys and questionnaires you can you could have the patient fill out. But in the end, if they're there with the problem that's distressing enough to come all the way to your office and sit down and talk to you about it, then then it's a problem enough to 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 address. And then. Well, well, let me ask you that one more follow-up on that. So is it usually the husband that gets the wife to come in because he's unhappy or the partner, whether it's husband or not, uh, or do, do women usually do this on their own, or is it a mixture? I think it's a mixture, but I would say more commonly it's the um, it's the patient doing it on her own. versus. Okay. Um, so the, the women usually perceive a loss, mm-hmm. a loss as we get older. We're in a season of loss, and that's one of the things that goes. Our breast sag, our uh, all uh, our uterus sags, and we have trouble with our urogen. Our skin sags, and our libido sags. Mm-hmm. All right. So, what do you do to evaluate that? Um, when we're talking about just uh, libido, the one of the first few things I talk about are number one, uh, talking about well, first ensure that there's not a pain component because if it hurts, you're not going to want to do it. And then the second thing then is uh, ensure uh, or, or try to ensure that the relationship's in a good place and and, then, and work on that if that's an issue. And then the next thing is um, uh, talk more about um, foreplay and leading up to uh, any sexual activity. And um, and that's where I will often talk about lubricate, lubricants, lubrications, and that sort of thing. Okay, so that those are all important areas, mm-hmm. all worth two hours of radio time. Uh, what people really want to know is, can they take a pill? And uh, uh, I got women taking Viagra. I got women asking about that other stuff, whatever the name of that is. And uh, I tell them that I don't think Viagra works for women, but I'm not sure. So let's clear that up. Mm-hmm. And I don't know anything about that new pill. Okay. So to answer, Viagra use by women is certainly an off-label use. Um, it's designed for erectile dysfunction in, in men. And so uh, so for women, uh, there have been some studies that have shown modest increase in um, in, in kind of orgasm domains of the, of the questionnaires. It's not going to be as helpful for desire or, or arousal. Um, or, or for the pain issues. Now, is that with Viagra or this other new drug? That's that's with Viagra. Now, there's for every study that shows it's helpful, there's others who have shown that it's not. So okay, it's, so it doesn't do anything for desire. Or, it's totally yeah. for function, yeah. orgasm. Correct. All right, so what about this other thing? Desire. So what you're referring to and what made headlines maybe a year and a half or two years ago was a, a brand, uh, the brand name product called Addy or Philbestern. And that was uh, designed. It's the only FDA-approved medication to try to help with uh, increase women's so libido. That's, still, or that's on the market, right? It is on the market. Addy, A D D I E, or what? A D D Y I. Uh-huh. And does it work? Uh, it, the The studies were um, uh, 
minimally. Um, if in, in the way they measured these studies were sexually satisfying events, and it goes, it would go from three a month on average, maybe increased by half to maybe one per month. So that, um, so that is not really to me a, a huge improvement. Although some women might argue with me. Um, well, it's going to have a twenty percent improvement because it's, it's a placebo. placebo. Exactly. Right. So you're not really impressed on that, but you're willing to try it if people want to try. I'm it. willing to try it if you follow the FDA uh, label labeling. It's for premenopausal women only, and um, you have to sign a contract to not consume alcohol with it. And so that once I say all that, I usually don't get a lot of takers. Yeah, I don't blame them. I don't <laughs> blame them. Hey, Elizabeth, we appreciate your call. What's going on? So you're not really impressed on Hey, Elizabeth. Hi. Why don't you turn that down and uh, let's talk? Oh, okay. We appreciate you calling. I'm Dr. Rick, here with Dr. Paul. Uh-huh. I'm 60 years old. Uh-huh. And um, I have a regular gynecologist and Simple. Let, let me ask you one more question before he gets to it. I don't mean to cut you off, but we do want to get your question. I have time to get, get your question. How often are you losing your urine? Not. I mean, not often. And it's just when I have, like, if I have to cough uh-huh. and or sneeze. Or I think maybe um, I, I worry that maybe during sex uh-huh. it might happen. Right. But it's uh-huh. never happened yet. Um, I don't. I don't know. I mean, not that. I oh, you know. I promise. Your husband would tell you, or your oh, okay. significant other. I'll tell you that you would know about that because okay. you can feel it. It's a warm flush. Yeah. The, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So that hadn't happened yet. All right. So have you done the exercises? Oh sure. Okay. All right. All right. So let it, let him I mean, answer I'm the question. You don't want to hear from me. All <laughs> so, right. So here's the uh, the deal with with, with slings. Um, and and what you're describing again is, is what we mentioned earlier: the stress incontinence and. So with mid-urethral slings, uh, I, I think he's right in saying that it's a urethral problem, not a bladder problem. And so, so a weak urethra is, is one way you, you could say that. And then so the slings are, once you get past, uh, once you move on to surgery, those are, that is our main surgery, our most common. And, and the reason is because it's so minimally invasive and it has good durability. And so um, there are different types of slings, but they all involve, at least I think what he's referring to is using a piece of, as you said, mesh underneath the urethra. And what I would, the one thing I would differ on what you said is that it is the same, it is mesh, and there's only, in this day and age, there's one type. Uh, 
a, a material product, but it's the location that it's placed and the, and the amount that's used that makes it different. Most of the so well, it is the same stuff. It's, it's not new stuff. It's it's the same hernia mesh that we've been that general surgeons have used for hernias that we start using for bladders and and slings for the urethra. And the difference is that it's, uh, from what really got the the uh, TV lawyer commercials all fired up is that it's a much smaller piece. Those were used for prolapse through the vagina. This is used for incontinence, and so it's a much smaller piece over the urethra and not over the bladder, and so. Um, so the uh, the the slings are actually very good. That's what I do as my primary surgery for stress incontinence when it comes to when the patient wants desire surgery. When it's done by itself, it's usually a 15, 20 minute procedure, and then you go home the same day with not a whole lot of recovery. Really? Mm-hmm. So the old uh, operations were more for uterine pro- prolapse. Well, is that right? Well. The older incontinence operations prior to us having slings, we or these uh, synthetic slings, were that we had to um, either uh, harvest sling material from your own body or do a procedure with sutures. All of that involved typically involves some other incision or like an abdominal incision to, mm-hmm. to do. Mm-hmm. And so th- those uh, were a little bit more involved in terms of recovery. Okay, Elizabeth, uh, how much more do you need? I'm good. I'm good. I just wanted to hear some more discussion. Well, let's make sure he thinks they work. How often does that work? So so the slings are our gold standard procedure now, and um, most, uh, I would say, somewhere around eight, upper 80 to 92%, 88 to 92% women are satisfied, and um, there's durability studies 17 to 20 years out where um, somewhere between 75 to 90% of women are still satisfied uh, with that sort of uh, that far out, and so that's why we like it and that we do it uh, because of its durability. Does it cause painful sex? On rare occasion, that is one known complication, depending on the type and the uh, and the location of it and how it was placed. Can you fix it if it happens? Uh, you can um, typically. Sometimes it involves an, a separate procedure to either remove it or excise mm-hmm. it. I mean, it's it is a foreign body, and so from Every once in a while, there is a complication from it that has to be dealt with. But that's unusual. It's unusual, somewhere around the 5% range. Okay, Elizabeth, if you want more, okay. send us an email, and we'll send you a bunch of stuff to read, okay? Okay, thanks so much. Drive safely. Okay, You're listening to Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. I'm Dr. Rick here with Dr. Paul, and we're talking about whatever you want to talk about, especially we're talking about urogynecology, women's uh urine and menopausal and other problems. Let's go to Mendenhall and Catherine. Hey, Catherine. Catherine, you're on the radio. Are you there? I think she panicked. Uh, And her question was about menopause. How do you tell if you're in menopause? Well, there's a couple of different ways to to tell. By the way, your doctor may have trouble. (laughs) Exactly. Um, I, I try to make it as simple as possible. I let the patient tell me. Um, now, but if you use def, by definition, it's a one year without a period. Um, but then, you know, what are the you know, the symptoms of the hot flashes, night sweats? Is it vaginal dryness, irritability? I mean, what are I mean, what what's driving the conversation typically? Well, we primary care doctors, not you uh, OBGYN guys, are told that if a woman uh, starts having irregular periods or spotting. They need to go see their gynecologist. Mm-hmm. That there are other things other than menopause that will do that, even with then, even if you're in the menopausal age range. 
I usually asked the woman when her mother had menopause or her sisters to give me some kind of idea about how urgent that evaluation should be. Mm-hmm. But um, th- those are taught to um, primary care people as alarm signs. Mm-hmm. Uh, am I right or wrong? Is Should they, should anybody that thinks they're going through menopause be checking with their, uh, their uh, OBGYN about that or what? So um, just to... I guess to clarify a few points, so postmenopausal, if you're postmenopausal, you've been a year without a period, and then you have bleeding, that's an alarm sign. That's definitely something that you want to get checked out. If you're in that what we call perimenopausal period, where your periods are spacing out, or um, or not not as frequent, or more frequent, or a little heavier and changing, that that may be normal, or it may not be. Um, uh, the mo- chances are it's just a normal kind of as you go through the the, the perimenopausal process. I think what people really care about, what nobody, what no doctor, or physician of any type wants to miss, is something like an endometrial or uterine cancer or or abnormal cells, and so that's what drives that whole go see your doctor, make sure it's nothing. And so uh, we find that on rare, fairly rare occasions, especially in the perimenopausal group, compared to everyone who's going through it. But there are a few things that we can do to check it out, depending on the severity of the symptoms, the amount of bleeding whether that's via ultrasounds or biopsies or just exams. So, so uh, every doctor has their favorite uh, menopausal treatment. Mm-hmm. Mine is Effexor, mm-hmm. which is uh, an antidepressant that uh, worked and works seems to work well. I don't like estrogens. I know you guys do sometimes. Mm-hmm. Let's get that out, and then let's go to break, and we'll let people call us at one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. So what's your favorite? Uh, well, for for the actual hot flashes and night sweats, if I have my choice and do whatever I want, I will use a, an estrogen product. A topical uh, or an oral? Oral for the hot flashes and night sweats, or mm. or top or topical on the skin, not topical vaginally, is mm. what I mean. And then, um, but I, I agree with you. The effectors, uh, the the antidepressants, do a great job of helping control those symptoms if you choose a non hormonal route. Uh, so that those are actually that's a very good. Um, Who should option. not have estrogens? Uh, those who have had a history of breast cancer, especially estrogen-positive breast cancer, is kind of the main thing we think of. Those who have clotting disorders where they make uh, clots or had DVTs or pulmonary embolisms are a few. Avery, we're going to answer your question right after this break, and we'll take your question if you give us a call at one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. That's one eight seven seven MPB ring. Ladies, you got a great chance to talk to your gynecologist. There are not many of them, and I pigeonholed one for you. So give us a call at one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. up on past episodes and hear any of the MPB programs you've missed on the MPB Public Radio app, available on iTunes and Google Play. Listen live to MPB Think Radio and MPB Music Radio. Search MPB Public Radio. This is Mississippi Public Broadcasting. 
Inauguration Day is right around the corner, and Chapter 1 of a new administration is set to begin. As stories take shape, NPR will be here with coverage you can depend on to help you make sense of it all. Listen every day. To listen to stories and shows, go to mpbonline.org. You're listening to Southern Remedy with Dr. Rick DeShazo on MPB Think Radio. We're glad to take your calls at 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. You can always email your comments and questions to southernremedy at mpbonline.org. This is MPB Think Radio, Mississippi Public Broadcasting. Hey, welcome back to Southern Remedy, All Things Considered. I'm Dr. Rick here with Dr. Paul, and we're taking your questions. And we're going to Hattiesburg and Mobile in just a second, two of my favorite places. Avery sent us an email. I'm 76, had my gallbladder removed because of pancreatitis. What information can you give me regarding recovery, resumption of active lifestyle, diet, etc.? Well, the most frequent reason for pancreatitis in people who have gallstones is what's called gallstone pancreatitis. The gallstone gets in your common duct, which is shared with your pancreas, and blocks the drains from your pancreas, and you end up with pancreatitis, which is awful, painful stuff. So I'm glad that you got that out. Most everybody that has a successful uh, cholecystectomy, which is a gallbladder removal, uh, uh, does well. Uh, most of them are done laparoscopic, uh, laparoscopically through a little hole and a port in your belly button or upper. And uh, I had that and uh, had a, had a uh, reception at my house the same night I had it done. So usually people are do real well with that. And only a minority of people have trouble with diet, like you ask. The fatty food can be a problem. We ought not be eating that anyway. Uh, and so most people, if uh, they adjust their diet to comfort, will do very well with this. And the main thing for you, Avery, since you're 76, is keep moving. Don't stop moving. Keep moving because uh, it's the exercise piece that is related to longevity and a good lifestyle. So thanks for that, and we will uh, um, uh, go to Hattiesburg and Ann. Hey, Ann. And you there? Oh, yes, yes, yes. I'm sorry. We're glad to have you. I'm glad to be with you. I'm wondering if Dr. Moore could recommend some uh, specific lubricants for vaginal dryness for postmenopausal women. Sure. That's always a good question, and I I never know which one. Mm -hmm. And so um, just... Outside, and, and I'm speaking now non-hormonally, so not talking about the vaginal estrogens that we typically use. Um, the and I'm and so when do you use vaginal estrogen, mm-hmm. which you get a little tube and use mm-hmm. on there, and and, it, and that's a, a prescription. That's, that's a prescription. That's mm-hmm. And okay, when so I'm talking about over the counter, over the counter. Okay, correct. I just want to. I want, and I just wanted the other people to to know the difference between the two, okay. and. Uh, and when do you use grease? Mm-hmm. Okay. And, and so, and, and again, to, to I guess to hone down your question, if we're talking at time of intercourse or yeah. or just day to day, so at time of intercourse, there's just there's a ton of products out there, but we can divide them into water based, silicone, oil based, and 
there's no right or wrong. Uh, I do, especially if you have sensitive skin, I recommend avoiding the ones with the additives that cause the, the heat and the tingling because that can cause uh, skin irritation. Which ones are those? Do you know them? Well, they all, all the brands have ones that add you know, warming to right. it or something like that. that mm-hmm. uh, okay. Um, but just, um, you know, just to use a, a few uh, product brands, um, the, uh, the KYs and the uh, Astroglides of the of the world are all water-based. They dry out faster. That's why some uh, women like the more silicone or oil-based. And believe it or not, one of my favorite recommendations is just olive oil or coconut oil from your kitchen. Uh, there's okay. no additives. There's no hormones in it. It's it's great for sensitive skin. Those can even be used on a daily uh, daily basis for, for just uh, daily moisture as well. Yeah, the Romans <laughs> used it for, for centuries. Yeah, mm-hmm. and it worked good. Mm-hmm. So um, uh, the... The the other thing that I tell people, uh, the allergist part of me is the first time they use it, they ought to use a little test dose on their vaginal mucosa just to make sure it doesn't cause a problem. Don't wait to use it right before uh, a sexual encounter because if you have trouble with it, uh, it may mess things up. So a little okay. test dose is always good. And uh, you're not going to go wrong with Astroglide, I don't think. I've never had a complaint from that one. That's what we use in the office. I think that's the one I recommend most often. Okay, Okay. and silicone-based will just last longer. It won't dry out as quickly. Correct. It lasts longer. It's a little slippery. It does stain the sheets, though, sometimes. So you've got to watch out for that. Okay, thanks for your call. And you helped a lot of people by asking that question. Let's go to Mobile and Lynn. Hey, Lynn. Lynn, we love Mobile, and we love you if you'll answer. You there? Hi, this is, yes, I'm here. Hi, my what's going on? Say what? My question is regarding stage four endometriosis. Okay. Um, total hysterectomy. Then what? Well, um, it depends on the timing of this. And usually with stage four, if you had a hysterectomy, you said total, I assume you're implying that your ovaries, ovaries were removed. And so... Every- I'm sorry? Everything. And it was on the bowel? And it was on the bowel. So uh, what is endometriosis for so, the rest of the folks listening? So endometriosis is a condition where endometrial cells, which normally, say, slough off at the time of a period, are um, in outside of the uterus but inside the pelvis or some other part so of the body. So you got vaginal mu- mucosa well, the, where it does not belong? Endometrial cells. Yeah. Yes, yeah. And they, they go they shed off during mm-hmm. periods and they in cause, the wrong place. Correct. And even it, it doesn't even have to be during periods. It can cause an inflammatory response and at any time. It's a nightmare. Mm-hmm. And she's experiencing it. Correct. And, and stage four, with it's on the bowel, that's, um, that's a uh, pretty significant uh, disease process. So, t- so typically that bowel... Um, those implants in the bowel is typically you want to remove at the same time as your surgery. Uh, the other things that we often think about are, so you've had your, and what you're asking is you've had your surgery, my ovaries are out, now what? Uh, some, there is some role for uh, further medication treatment for what we call Lupron therapy, which, um, which can decrease the amount of uh, estrogen. Uh, we sometimes add that even after uh, ovaries are removed, although we think ovaries is the most definitive treatment we can get. Uh, if you're talking about lingering pain or pain that's still going on afterwards, uh, it, there's, it could even be mo- mo- uh, multifocal beyond just endometriosis. We know that uh, women who have endometriosis have uh, many other problems, including uh, bladder pain, uh, pelvic pain in terms of intercourse pain. Some relate to pelvic floor muscles uh, and, and other conditions. 
So what, give her one, two, three, what you would do with a usual patient like this. Uh, she's still having symptoms, so mm-hmm. obviously she's still got mucosa somewhere, and obviously she doesn't want to be. Go ahead. Quick question. A quick question. What is the survival rate after five years? Uh, I, survival not, rate of what? Endometriosis. Endometriosis doesn't kill you. It's not a cancer. So the survival rate is is great. Yeah. You're miserable if it's still there, but it, it doesn't kill you. That's funny because Google said the survival rate after five years is seventeen percent. Uh, I think that was you. That, I don't think they were talking about endometriosis. That that would have to have been some sort of uh, cancer. Of yeah, some endometrial point, cancer. Re Google, and if you don't get it straight, send me an email and I'll send you the info on that. Okay. So don't hang any crate. Don't take out extra burial insurance. You're going to be fine, and uh, you'll see a lot of Mardi Gras. So thanks for your call, Lynn. Let's go to Jackson and Susan. Hey, Susan. Hey, how are you? We're good. We appreciate your call. Sure. I have a question. Um, I'm postmenopausal. I had breast cancer 14 years ago. Had a complete hysterectomy. I've extreme vaginal dryness, and my doctor just gave me some estradiol cream, and in reading some of the possible side effects, I swear I think it said dementia or something, you know, if you read all that, well, my mother has dementia, so I'm afraid to use it. Now, my breast cancer was non-invasive. And I had a double mastectomy, but I wanted to know, is that safe to use? Generally speaking, yes. The uh, the, the, the couple things to say about that is uh, in someone who's using vaginal estrogen after breast cancer, it, generally it's thought of as pretty safe, although I often check with their oncologist just to get the, the blessing, so to speak, uh, although most studies have not shown a recurrence rate from vaginal estrogen. Uh, in terms of dementia, what you're reading there in the product labeling is the product labeling every estrogen gets, uh, including the oral estrogens. And so all of that, uh, is all, most of the product labeling that you read is, basically, is, off, is really talking about the oral estrogens. And even then, there's some debate about dementia and, and, and oral estrogens. So there, that, that's coming from mostly the nurses' study, the, where the, some the of them were and the put on oral study. ones, and they they thought that yeah. would protect them from lots of stuff, and it didn't mm-hmm. protect them from anything much. And the uh, dementia rate was slightly higher mm-hmm. in that long-term study right. with people on estrogen. Mm-hmm. It may be a fluke. I think it's a fluke. There's no scientific explanation of why that would do that. Uh, but you're going to be using mostly topical products mm-hmm. now anyway. Correct. Right. So uh, y'all are real cautious about that, right? Mm-hmm. So, Susan, if you need that, uh, you probably need to get some more input from whoever prescribed it because you didn't get the full story. And so I would just give that provider a call rather than going back to the office and tell him that you have some more questions or her and uh, and get that answered. And we'll be happy to send you some info if you send us an email at Southern Remedy at mpbonline.org. Did we get your question answered? Yes, you did. Thank you very much. Drive carefully. We appreciate your calling. And I, I love y'all's show. Well, we're trying. 
and provide a lot of helpful information. You're mighty sweet. We're doing our best. Let's go to Clinton and Sandra. Hey, Sandra. Sandra, you there? I am. Let's hear it. When you were talking about low libido and women, I don't recall whether you mentioned the fact that many medications uh, are responsible for killing that low libido. You're absolutely right, and um, that is part of kind of the intake is the, the look at the uh, the medication list, the the ones that we talk about sometimes for hot flashes and night sweats, the SSRIs or NRIs for depression, the Effexors and Prozacs of the world are notorious for, for decreasing uh, libido. That is exactly right. Yeah, and some uh, antihypertensive mm-hmm. medicines will do it in females. They're a big, big mm-hmm. problem in men mm-hmm. with erectile dysfunction, so... Uh, uh, bless you, Sandra, uh, for calling us and making us remind remind folks about drugs, uh, which are always uh, of concern. And you, right, and and if the patient's not aware of that, they may think something else is wrong, or they're not in love with their mate anymore. <laughs> all kinds all of things, things can go crazy. Right, 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 and and that's why I think in general. Uh, used to be male doctors just didn't listen to women who had issues about libido. We are very, very sensitized to that, and we're doing our best, especially our young doctors like Dr. Moore. We have beaten them to death, telling, trying to get all that uh, uh, disinterest out of their heads. And now that we know a little bit more about the, the, the physiology, the endocrinology of it it's a much more interesting thing to talk about so i think your average male doctor let's talk about female versus male gynecologist i am now having a lot of women say i would prefer to see a a female gynecologist not a male Hmm. why do you think that is probably just a a comfort level perhaps um or maybe uh an ability to identify with whatever issue she may be. Well, you're up. training them. You're mm-hmm. training them. You're yeah. one of the professors yeah. now. What well, are yeah. you telling these male gynecology OBGYN people? Usually they're a different cut. They love women, mm-hmm. and that's why yeah. they do this. They went into a field of women's health for a reason, and that's and that's their passion. So, uh, for the, for them, when I'm talking to our male residents, you know what I try to explain to them is that you, we are. Um, you do have, at least initially, maybe a little bit of a barrier to overcome. And so you can uh, get by that through listening and following through the patient and, and addressing their needs and just doing a good job. Yeah, I th- I, what I tell women who say this is, sure, I will refer you to a female. Um, we don't have as many of them as we would like. Sometimes it's difficult to get in to see them. We've got a lot at UMC now, mm-hmm. and a, a lot of them are going into this field now. And just the residency programs in general are uh, – dominated by women there's yeah. gonna very soon there'll be a shortage of male OBGYNs, yeah. i would guess and so what i tell women uh with their doctors whether it's me mm-hmm. uh and it is me sometimes uh or the gynecologist is be honest with your doctor if you feel your doctor's blowing you off say hey you know i i really want you to help me with this i sort of feel like you're not giving me uh, a due hearing on this, and we won't get mad. If we do, you ought to get another one. Hey, welcome to the end of Southern Remedy. We've enjoyed visiting with you, and I appreciate very much Dr. Paul Moore. He'll be back 
Uh, and uh, Southern Remedy is a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting, Think Radio. Catch the replay of today's show at Sunday at 6 a.m. And join us next Wednesday at 11 for the original Southern Re- Remedy, where the doctors are always in. Stay tuned. NPR's Here and Now is next on MPB Think Radio. Underwritten by Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Mississippi. Live healthy. Live blue. It's good to be blue. More at bcbsms.com. Prepare for some active weather across the entire state of Mississippi as we cruise throughout the next couple of days. We have copious amounts of moisture streaming in, interacting with the boundary, and eventually a low-pressure system coming in, and the risk of showers and thunderstorms are on the rise.